this morning, uh, in the back row, we had a husband and wife who visited with us. Who said that the reason that they visited is because they drove by this church in the past. And several people were holding signs that said Jesus and free Bibles. I want you to know that it works. And John was telling me after services this morning of a couple of cases uh, at the Bible camp last week in Indiana where the people from the camp went off campus and engaged in discussions with people and got Bible studies as a result of it. So it can work. Just keep on looking for opportunities, looking for opportunities to speak his word to anybody who is willing to listen. Lord willing, for a few lessons on Sunday night, I want to explore some of these questions. What or who is the church? Who is this group? What is this group? What does it mean? Is the word always used the same way in the New Testament? Is the church the means of salvation? Or is it the result of salvation? And what would you say if you were seeking to encourage someone to attend a particular local church? These questions are very simple. In some ways, the answers are very simple. But I wanted us to study these things together. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts 8. As we talk about this question, what or who is the church? Sometimes we throw that term around, but what do we even mean by that term? In context, Stephen has just been stoned. He has been executed. And the Bible tells us that some of the devout men were burying Stephen, making loud lamentation over him, verse 2. And in verse 3, Saul began ravaging the church. He was ravaging the church, destroying the church, ruthless against the church with all the fury of a wild animal, all that's indicated with that word. He began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. As Paul was dragging off men and women who were like Stephen, devoted to Jesus the Messiah, he was ravaging the church. The church is that group of people who, like Stephen, are devoted to Jesus as the Messiah. You see this in Acts 9 verse 1. Acts 9 verse 1, the same kind of idea as Acts 8 verse 3. 
Acts 9, really verses 1 and 2, the text says Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked for letters from the synagogues, from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. The church that Saul was ravaging are these disciples that he is uttering threats against. It is these men and women who belong to the way that he brings back bound to Jerusalem. It is the people who are dedicated to God and who are following God. Look at Galatians 1. Galatians 1, the same kind of idea. Paul was talking about his past in his Jewish faith. And he states in Galatians 1 in verse 13, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. He persecuted the church. Well, what did he do? In verse 22 and 23, I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing that he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. He was persecuting the church of God in verse 13, but he is persecuting us. He's persecuting the people of God. He's persecuting those who were following Jesus. So in a very real way, it's a very simple answer. The church are those men and women who are following Jesus Christ. Now, the word church is a collective noun. Let me illustrate and I don't know if these things I use to illustrate are the best, but you will get the idea. Singular, you have one cow. As a plural, you have cows or cattle. But if they are all belonging to the same person, they're all linked together, they are a herd of cattle. The herd isn't something separate from the cattle. The herd is the cattle, but it's considered, they're considered as a collective noun. If you had one link of a chain, you have a link. If you have many, you have links. If you combine them together, you have a chain. And a church is the same kind of idea. It is a collective noun. And the Bible says, and look at Matthew 18 with me, a passage that you'll be familiar with. And Matthew 18 is worthy of much discussion. And tonight we're not going to talk about the most important aspects of the passage. What we are going to talk about from this passage is what it shows us about the church. Matthew's gospel is the only one that uses that word church. It uses it twice in 1618 and here in 18 verse 17. But in verse 15, if your brother sins, 
Go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. So your brother has sinned against you and this brother or sister goes to talk to him in private. The hope is that it ends there. In verse 16, if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. In our picture, this is a plural. You have a Christian, one individual follower of Jesus in verse 15. In verse 16, you have a group of them involved as they are calling a brother to repentance. But in verse 17, you have a group collectively that is seeking to do that. The church. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This is a group of Christians who act collectively together. That is the idea of the word church. Now one of the questions we asked just a moment ago was... Are there different ways this word is used in the New Testament? Is this word used always in the same way? The word church is from the Greek term, it's a translation of the Greek term ekklesia. It It could be translated assembly. And it is translated assembly in Acts 19 to describe an assembly at Ephesus, which was not particularly religious in nature. Acts 19 in verse 32, Acts 19 in verse 39. It's used 62 times in the epistles of Paul. Now, one way the word is used, particularly in the book of Ephesians, is the word is used in what we would speak of as the universal sense. The universal sense. Look at some of these passages in Ephesians with me, if you would. Though you may know them well. In Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23, He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him as the head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. The church is, in this particular case, Jesus is the head of the church. The church is described as his body. And the idea is that the church is submissive to its head. Now, this is not a description of one particular local church, but this is a description of all God's people Everywhere You see the same kind of thing in Ephesians chapter 5, or excuse me, Ephesians 3 in verse 20 and 21. As the Bible tells us to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. To him be glory in the church. The church are a group of people who seek to glorify 
God. Ephesians 5 often uses the word church in this universal sense. For example, in Ephesians 5 and verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. The word church is used this way when Jesus says, I will build my church. And it is used this way when the Bible tells us that Christ purchased the church with his blood. But I want you to think. We emphasize the church is the people of God. It is the disciples of the Lord. It is the followers of Jesus. What does it mean that Christ purchased the church with his blood? What's that mean? Let's say that you were talking to a farmer. And he said he vaccinated his herd. How do you vaccinate the herd? You vaccinate the sheep or the cattle, excuse me. That would be a flaw. Forgive me that. But you vaccinate the cattle that make up the herd. How does Christ purchase the church? He purchases from sin the men and women who are the church. He bought us back from sin. When the Bible says in Matthew 16, 18, that Christ said, I will build my church. What does this mean? That means upon this confession that Jesus is the Son of God, Christ builds up, saves these people from sin, and makes them into a living house. Let me read another passage for you that says the same kind of thing that Matthew 16, 18 says. Coming to him as a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up acceptable sacrifices, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. The passage, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 4 and 5. Christ is the living stone. Every time, every time a person is converted to Christ, they become a living stone in this spiritual house that the Lord is building up. A new stone is added to the building every time someone is converted. But always think when you read those passages, in terms of the people of God. Don't think of it as something separate from the people. But the word church sometimes is used of a specific local group of people. In Acts 11 verse 22, the Bible tells us news about them, about the conversion of Gentiles, in the city of Antioch, the news about them reached the church of the ears at Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. But it mentions the church at Jerusalem. This is not all God's people everywhere, but a specific local group. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, not, not to all God's people everywhere, though ultimately we receive that letter and benefit from that letter, this letter was specifically addressed to a church at a particular place, a local congregation. It's not used in the sense of all God's people everywhere. It's used in the sense of a specific local group. And both 1 Thessalonians 1.1 and 2 Thessalonians 1.1 use the term the church of the Thessalonians. Paul and Silvus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the word church is used in a universal sense of all God's people. It's used in a local sense of a specific group that works together and worships together. And it is used in the sense of the assembly, particularly in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 19, Paul says, In the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. In the church, in the assembly. So as a group of people are assembled together, as we are tonight, that is one way the word church is used. Now would you consider the things we've said? The church is the people of God. Whether we're talking locally, whether we're talking universally, the church is God's people. And think about different ways the word church is used. Now I ask you to follow me in a little bit of historical observation. Which some of you have lived through more than I have and may know better than I do. If I were to ask you in what period of American history did more people attend church services regularly than any other, what would be your answer? And I sometimes wonder about what it was like in colonial America when you see people making long quotes about God and about Christ. And it's impossible to tell now that. But I have seen estimates that church attendance in colonial America in the early days of our country was as low as 8%. From 1955 to 1958, to our knowledge, church attendance was the highest at any point in American history. It was 50% approximately. And during the 1950s, 
church membership was growing at a rate that was faster than population in general. Population in general was not growing as fast as people were becoming members of churches. And culture was incredibly different. Some ways that were not good, but in some ways that were. Several years ago, I stumbled upon an interview which Mike Wallace, I believe it was Mike Wallace, but it was one of the 60 Minutes crew, did in 1957 with Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood. She was on the hot seat in that interview. In that interview, if you can still access it, if you want to look it up, you see a different culture where there was a high respect for God, a high respect for the Bible, an unbelievable idea that she would dare promote divorce. There weren't a whole lot of sermons preached in churches about choosing Christianity over Islam or about homosexuality before in that culture people understood those things and among the fastest growing religious groups were churches of Christ. Some have argued that they were the fastest growing. Mac Lynn, who I did have the privilege of knowing and being in a class with once many years ago, stated that he doesn't think that it's particularly correct that churches were ever the fastest growing religious group because he said some of those statistics were inflated not by any, because of any deceptive means but just because the people who were asked to give them could not contact every specific congregation. And in that time, many sermons, as you would expect, if church membership is growing so quickly and there is no people believe God and believe the Bible, many of the sermons focus on why we should attend this church and not that church. Now applying the things that we have said, I want to show you the type of thing that was often stated. I want to ask you what the difficulty is with this. encourage people to worship with a particular congregation. Well, what was done many times, not every instance, don't misunderstand me, and it's not to question the motives of those who did it, but it is to say, is this 
valid? Is this particularly correct? The question would be asked, did your church start in Jerusalem in 30 AD? As ours did in Acts 2. And is Christ the foundation of your church? And I make quote Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church and Christ purchased the church. And Ephesians 5, 23 about Jesus Christ being the Savior of the body. Then they might argue that the church has no organization greater than a local level. And if your church is organized on a level more than the local congregation, then you're doing something wrong. Because Philippians 1 verse 1 said, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. So, the church was organized on a local level. And you don't find in the New Testament, you don't find things parallel to all the churches being gathered together and having a big conference or synod that made rules for the group. Acts 15 would be uh, an example of the apostles doing such in their day, but, but you didn't have one person over all the churches is the point, which was a true point. And then the question would be asked, how do you worship in services? Like things like instrumental music in Ephesians 5, three, Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16, which specify singing, but don't mention the instrument. But do you see what those arguments did? Those arguments take points about the universal church that are true and then combine them with points about a local church that are true but kind of obscure what you're talking about. We would have a hard time convincing people that this specific local church started in 30 AD in Jerusalem. People could say, I remember two years ago when you weren't there. Now, am I minimizing Acts 2? It's not my purpose. But my purpose is sometime in seeking to win people, we combine these ideas of the universal church and the local church in such a way that we kind of obscured what we were talking about. And I know that by experience. Because I preached some of those lessons and then at some point recognized what I was saying, had problems with it, but I couldn't see through it until I heard a good lesson that made 
those distinctions. Now, our purpose is not to say those things may not be right or true, but to say you can't put them all in the same pot as being true of this particular local church because some of them apply to the church in the universal setting. But I thought, how am I going to make it clear to see the distinctions in what I'm trying to say? What are the differences in these concepts? The universal church, again, is all of God's people. All of God's people. Who composes the universal church? Who makes the directory for that church? Well, only God knows who is and who is not among his people. God knows that. In Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, there will be some on the last day who said, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name do many mighty miracles. And I will confess to you that I never knew you. God knows who belongs to him and who doesn't. And God will make that distinction and God will separate them. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 33, the Bible talks about the sheep being placed on the right hand and the goats being made on the left. Again, God knows who is who. God knows who the sheep are who have done these things that he has spoken of in that passage. You, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And those who didn't, when I was hungry, you gave me nothing. When I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. God knows who is His. Now in a local church, we seek to be guided by what God said about fellowship. We seek to be guided by what He said about who we should accept and who we shouldn't. We seek to be guided by Him, but do we always know all of the facts? In the New Testament, we see times where people were not received into local churches when people were in fellowship with God. For example, in Acts 9, Paul had been converted as he is, is baptized by Ananias. And the text tells us that he preaches there in Damascus. But finally, when he goes to Jerusalem in Acts 9, 26, he tries to associate with the disciples and they don't want anything to do with him because they don't believe he's a disciple. Now, is their fear understandable? It is to me. Are they seeking to apply God's standards to Paul? They're seeking to, but they don't know the facts. They don't know what's happened with Paul. And when Barnabas comes and tells them how he had seen the Lord at Damascus and spoken out boldly at his name, then they receive him into their group. A mistake was made for not so noble reasons in 3 John. In 3 John verses 9 and 10, Diotrephes 
the Bible says, loves to be first among them and does not accept what we say. In verse 10 of 3 John, For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does unjustly, accusing us with wicked words. And not satisfied with this, neither does he himself receive the brethren, and forbids those who desire to do so, and puts them out of the church. Now his motives weren't so noble. He wants to be first among them. And as a result of them, if anyone received the apostles or those sent by the apostles to teach, not only did he refuse to receive them, but he would tell people they couldn't receive him. And if they did, they were cast out of the church. Does that mean those people lost fellowship with God? No. It means... It means that they weren't in fellowship with that church, but that church was making a mistake. But a mistake can be made in the other area. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We've seen churches that did not receive people who were true believers, but it can work the other way. A church may receive people or may receive a person who is not a true believer, who is not walking according to to the light. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, it's actually reported that there is immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. He spends a verse rebuking the person and spends the rest of the chapter rebuking the church for receiving him. The church was doing wrong and accepting one guilty of an open sin that even the Gentiles did not tolerate. Should he have been comforted when he lay down at night by thinking some people say I'm wrong, but I'm a member in good standing in the church of Corinth. That didn't make much difference, did it? I just used this to illustrate how we can make a distinction between the universal church and all God's people and the local church, God's people, at a particular place who work and worship together. Lord willing, in a few other Sunday nights, we'll explore some of these ideas further. I don't know if this is something that is very familiar to you or if it sounds strange. I, I, I don't know. I was recently in a conversation with someone that is very well informed and we were talking about this subject and all of a sudden we realized in the midst of the discussion that we weren't exactly agreed. And so we saw to define terms. But feel free to ask.
if you need to. I'm going to try to explain what I believe is what the Bible teaches. But at the same time, I think what I'm saying is extremely simple. And I hope I've been able to keep it simple. One semester that I was in college, I had the privilege of having a class with Robert Turner. I never knew people, I don't know that I ever knew anyone who could take something complex and make it so simple that it was hard to miss. And particularly his writings, some of his writings about the church have been very helpful to many over the years, if you have opportunity to look those up. But let us pray. O Lord our God, you are great and you are holy. You deserve glory and honor. We pray, O oh Lord, that individually we seek to honor you and praise you. We pray that collectively, as a church, we seek that same thing. And that in all areas of our life, we seek to surrender to you, whether it is an area that no one sees or no one knows about, or whether it is something that we do openly, and before others, we pray that we may be, by your mercy, by your grace, forgiven and in a right relationship with you. That we may be among your sheep. That we may be among those to whom you say, enter in the kingdom of your Lord, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. To you, O oh God, be all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. We invite you, if you are not a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus Christ. As you are baptized in Jesus Christ for remission of sins, you will be a part of the church in the universal sense. All those people who follow Jesus. And if you're around here, we hope you would worship and work with us. But if you want to surrender to him, the most important is that you be right with God. If you need to repent of your sins and be baptized into Christ, we'd be glad to assist you as we stand and sing. Number 180, humble yourself. No so long, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord.